Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Stop the Killing is proud to be supported by our sponsor, EZPA. EZPA is an integrations-capable communication software that connects older building systems, such as signage and public address systems, to modern software technologies, such as panic alarms and mass communication systems. Go to EZPA.com, that's E-Z-Y-P-A.com, to learn how to integrate your systems today. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, this episode is actually a little bit closer to my old home, New Zealand's. So I'm kind of excited about this because this is something that I didn't know a lot about and you do, because today we're going to talk about what is commonly referred to as the Port Arthur Massacre. It's this terrible mass shooting that occurred in April of 1996 in Port Arthur, which, as you know, a location in Tasmania, which is part of Australia. After this shooting, the country's whole governing authorities passed the toughest laws in the world for guns after this shooting. It's really interesting to think in every country, we have this question about how guns play into it and what would happen if we got rid of the guns. Mm. And yet, in fact, we have an experiment going on right now of a country that essentially did get rid of all their guns. I think it's fascinating because this is almost where we started, you and I. Our very first conversation was, is it just America that's bad with guns? And that led to this whole conversation about it. And I'm so excited that we've also got Professor Adam Lankford from the University of Alabama. He's a professor in criminology, and he has done a study, which is a study of 171 countries. Essentially, the study looks at the correlation between gun ownership and violence and how it correlates to mass shootings. In different countries. I think that's what's fascinating. His research Mm. gives us this global view that a lot of times we don't get. Exactly. So he's going to zoom out. But before we do that, we're going to zoom in. Port Arthur is a former prison colony. It's a popular tourist site in southeastern Tasmania, the island that's across from mainland Australia, southern tip of the country, actually. And I'm not a native. I didn't travel there. So for those of you who are way more schooled in this tragedy, or were affected by it. I'm going to try to get it right, but I mean no disrespect to any listener because this is a very sensitive situation, as they all are. So this is really a tragedy that occurred kind of over two locations and in between. We have a basically a B&B, a bed and breakfast that's named Seascape. And then mm-hmm. we have the historic site that I mentioned. Seascape at the time was owned by a family with a surname of Martin. And we'll later learn that there was some perceived conflict or real conflict with the Martins. And that's really part of what we believe led to what occurred, at least with regard to the location. So the day of the shooting is April 28, 1996. Our shooter leaves his home in Newtown, which is about 100 kilometers away, maybe an hour and a half from Port Arthur. He stops at four or five places along the way in his car as he travels. 
with his surfboard on the top and his yellow Volvo. He has three semi-automatic weapons, a shotgun, a bunch of ammunition, and some other items. He arrives at the seascape. He stops and inquires about a room, and we later learn that he had a conflict with the Martins. But at the time when he stops, he is there for a short time, and some other people stop by. And so they interact with him. He acts strangely. He says that people aren't available. Nobody can go in and look for a room. And he locks the door to the B&B and he leaves. And he drives straight up to the historic site. He drives into the car park and security people direct him in a direction. He follows their direction briefly and then he ignores it. And he drives right over next to the cafe for the historic site. And he parks where he wants to park anyway. And the security guard says, oh, he sees him carrying a sports bag. He walks into the cafe. He gets something to eat and he sits outside and eats a little bit. It's lunchtime. There are probably 60 people in the cafe. He tries to speak with some of the people outside. Some of the people report that he tried to chat with them. He doesn't have much conversation. He seems a little nervous. Some people report he looks back at his car a few times. And then out of nowhere, he pulls out a rifle and kills a couple from Malaysia immediately. Pivots and kills a woman and injures a man sitting nearby. Pivots again. He's not even really moving hardly. Mm -hmm. And he begins to shoot. There are people scrambling for there's a report that a staffer throws a serving tray in his direction and is immediately killed. Another 44-year-old customer stands up and yells, no, no, and is immediately shot at a nearly point blank range. Three other men in their 60s are sitting right by him and don't even have time to turn. He shoots them basically in the back of the heads. So this is a very super vicious killing. He was sitting sort of like a what you would think of if you had a bunch of picnic tables together mm. in the room. So it's really very tight proximity, the way people are sitting. Is he inside or outside at this stage? Because he was eating his lunch outside. He was eating his lunch outside. He stepped to the doorway. And so he was really kind of at the exit. Okay. And so he was kind of blocking the exit. This building has, you think of tourist stops. It has a place to eat and a place where you can buy food and sit down. And then it has like a little gift shop. So when he steps in, he's in the area where the food is, not necessarily the gift shop, but he's kind of blocking the exit door where he's standing. And he's shooting people inside the building, not outside. He's inside the building shooting people who don't even get out of their seats. Some right. people still have like forks in their hand when oh, they're found my dead. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah, it's a very gruesome, gruesome scene. In 15 seconds, he fires 17 rounds. All of them, as I said, nearly point blank. He kills 12 people and he injures 10. You might do the math on that. Yeah. Exactly. And say, wait, how can 22 people be injured with 17 rounds? Mm. He was shooting with a rifle. Rifles are very powerful weapons. Rounds were going through a person and hitting a person behind them. Bullets don't stay together all the time when they hit. So they could go through a person, impact a table or a metal chair or the floor, and then it breaks into pieces. And then those pieces, that shrapnel goes up and hits other people. Gosh. So there were couples there, like this group of 10 who came in on a bus together, husband and wife, husband and wife, husband and wife. And when it happened, men were pushing their wives down on the ground and getting over them. Other women were like pushing aside their friends. So people were covering each other. So in some cases, they were literally huddled together. And because he was in this exit area, it made it kind of difficult for anybody to move around, although some of them did. But he quickly pivoted to the gift shop area and he killed the two young ladies who were working behind the counter. And there was 
sad situation. One of your fellow countrymen, a New Zealander who was in the cafeteria, he thought the shooter had moved on and he stepped out, but the shooter heard him and heard some noises and he pivoted back and he shot directly and killed him. And others, you know, were hit with fragments of bullets at that time. Why it's so important that we talk about prevention is because once the shooting starts, the casualty count is terrible. Mm. So by the time he finished in that area, he'd fired 29 shots and 20 people were dead and 12 were wounded. He was firing with a 30-shot magazine. He'd fired 29 shots. We know that because he did a magazine exchange and he took that magazine out of his weapon and he left it on the counter in the gift shop. I think that's where he left it. And so they found that later. And as he changed the magazine, he stepped outside where all the coaches were parked. He's shooting kind of down at people now because the building is up a little bit higher. Right. Well, some of the ground is high, some of the ground is low. So it certainly is lower where the car parks are. And then there are surrounding areas that are a little higher. And we know that because this is a tourist spot. People actually had video cameras out. Right. Even and in 1996. So, exactly. Because it was a tourist area. Yeah. Exactly. So, so there are some people, for instance, who were further away, heard the shots recognize them as gunshots and turn their cameras towards the building or the car park. And you can see some of the people trying to get away. And in the footage that was actually preserved, you can see him going to his car and things like that. So he's in the car park and he's moving around the buses and other places looking for people who he can shoot. And he is shooting people outside. He's often hitting them in the back as they're running away. He has really the vantage point, right? Because he's looking for targets and people are just scrambling and running. And he didn't say anything, which is not uncommon. I think in many instances, these shooters just fire because they're in a mental zone and kind of a state. So he goes to his car. He had a bag full of weapons and he gets what is called a self-loading rifle. It's a particular type of military rifle, right? which I think the details of aren't as important as the fact that this is a gun that was made by Belgians as a weapon of warfare, which is, you know, very uh, powerful, impactful. And he continues to shoot people in the park and then he climbs in his car and he drives down the road towards the toll booth that lets you in. And along the way, he stops and he kills four people at the toll booth uh, who are in a car. Right. Now he's kind of indiscriminately shooting, but he's doing it down the road. It's less than a half an hour from when it started. And he's already headed off site and he's already caused, by my count, maybe 24 deaths. Yeah. He stops along the way and he's, in fact, headed back to the B&B, as it turns out. But he stops along the way for a woman who has two children. I think they were four and six, but I might be wrong about those dates. And she has a car problem or something. And he stops along the way briefly. And then he lets her beg for their lives before he kills the mother and the children no. on the side of the road. Oh, my yeah. God. Do you know, there was just that tiny glimmer in my mind when I thought you were going to tell me something good then, when I thought you were going to say he helped her with the car. I don't know. How long have we been doing this? I should know that's never going to fucking happen. The thing is that sometimes a shooter goes past somebody. In an example, um, remember I told you he ran out of bullets? Mm-hmm. He was in the process of shooting four people who were together. And because he pulled the trigger and the fourth bullet didn't go to kill a guy, that guy survived. So, I mean, that was not a benefit of him. No. Right? I mean, he loaded, but then he didn't go back to that guy. But indeed, he did kill these people along the side of the road. And in the process of his interaction with different people, one of the things that happens is 
he forces a couple to get out of their car. He kills her. And for some bizarre reason, he forces the man to get into the boot. So he drives down the road. Yeah. What? He's just gone and killed a mother with two kids up the road. So it's so indiscriminate. He was very indiscriminate, it seems like, how he killed people, Mm. for sure. And I think actually he killed the mother and the kids just down the road, but it doesn't matter. It's all within a few minutes of mm. each other. And and he is actually firing at cars along the road as he heads to the B&B. My so he's God. just basically shooting. Yeah. But he switched cars. He had to move his guns that he was still carrying with him, like over to the new car. Right. So it really just took a few minutes. But while he was doing it, he's firing at cars along the way. He's firing at people without hitting them. And those are actually the first people who call the police. Right. They're like, hey, we're driving down this road and there's some freaking nut who's firing at us with a weapon. So he gets back to the seaside and he drags this driver out of the boot of the car and handcuffs him to a stair rail inside of a guest house building. And this occurred in the afternoon of the 28th. And he wasn't arrested until the morning of the 29th. Right. What occurs between the afternoon and then the morning of the 29th is just this long protracted story of... The police find out, they negotiate, the law enforcement says he really doesn't negotiate in good faith. And that's not a negotiation. That's just a guy kind of playing with you. And he's Mm. still in that house and the police know he's there. But, you know, you don't just go in a guns a blazing. You kind of wait and try to negotiate him out. By the next morning, the wait and negotiate him out has disappeared because he lights the house on fire. And in the process, I shouldn't laugh, he gets his own clothing lit on fire. And he comes running outside to have first responders help him. And in fact, he's arrested and he's treated at the same hospital where all these other hospital patients are being taken. But I will say that when the house fire is put out, they find that the man who had been handcuffed to the rail, who was thrown in the boot, was at some point during the night killed. And he's deceased. But they also find the Martins were killed. And as it turns out, they were the first two killed. So he's gone there before he's gone to the historic site. Exactly. He had a conflict with them. So in all, there were 35 deaths and 23 people wounded. The worst by far massacre in modern Australian history. And I want to tell you, Mm. the victims were ages 6 to 72. So I think the youngest little girl was 6. Gosh. I mean, the definition of indiscriminate, isn't it? I know we're going to go into the shooter's history later in the show, so I don't want to jump ahead, but he survived, didn't he? He did survive. You know, there was a question about whether he was going to go to trial, and in fact, he pled guilty and spent his life in jail. So for the survivors and the families of the victims, there's some solace in that, I think. In cases like this, when the shooter has survived... Do they often give or provide information and insight to law enforcement into their planning and their processes, or are they generally uncooperative? Well, in general, we get a lot of information anytime a shooter survives. But part of the reason for that is that the shooter wants to talk about it. They've been thinking about it for a long time. And so they want to have an opportunity to share how brilliant their plan was and why they think that they were going to do this. And for them, it's them maintaining the attention of everyone, which in some instances is exactly why they did it to begin with, right? They want the notoriety of it, and they get the notoriety as long as people keep talking about them and to them. And now a word from our sponsor. EasyPA is an integration-capable communication software that connects older building systems 
such as signage and public address systems, to modern software technologies, such as panic alarms and mass notification systems. Additional features include built-in automated bell schedules, remote access, text-to-natural voice announcements, and custom audio playlists. EZPA is one of the only full-service public address and communications companies that has in-depth knowledge on both the hardware and software aspects of communication and evacuation-based products. As a solution-based company, they offer design, supply, installation, and maintenance of all their products. And for use in schools, EZPA software provides multi-zone capabilities, pre-scheduled daily announcements and bells, and a remote alert button that can be accessed from anywhere in the school. Once a panic alarm is triggered, law enforcement is notified immediately. EZPA makes schools safer from any threat. Go to EZPA.com. That's E-Z-Y-P-A dot com to learn how to integrate your systems today. If you want to be a reseller or integrations partner, visit EZPA.com to learn more. That's E-Z-Y-P-A dot com. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcasts, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. Catherine, let's talk about contagion because three weeks before the Port Arthur massacre, there was actually on the other side of the world another shooting, right? It was a school shooting, sadly, in Dunblane, which is a town in Scotland. It occurred in March of 96. This shooting that in Port Arthur was in April of 96. So it was the deadliest shooting that had happened in British history. And it was really in a three or four minute time span. We had a killer who killed a teacher and 16 students and wounded 15 others. So it was mm. a terrifying, very quick, 31 casualties, 16 of them dead. Three or four right? minutes, crazy. So some experts at the time after Port Arthur theorized, which I think was uh, good thinking at the time, that the Dunblane shooting had really had a contagion impact and may have prompted this shooter to act. And I think that's understandable if you recognize that coverage of the Dunblane incident was extensive. We have research specifically on the United States shootings to talk about how when a shooting occurs, we now know it causes other shootings. So this is 1996. Has the contagion theory popped its head up before this, or is this one of the first sort of links that they've made? No, I would say it's more like parallel. You know, once we got to the 20-year anniversaries of uh, Port Arthur, the 20-year anniversary of Dunblane, people started to say, hey, wait a minute, did one cause the other? And so they're looking back to say that. Let me quote one of the research projects, because there was all this research done. But one of the most striking things that I read in the research was this quote, using our benchmark estimate, a simple back of the envelope calculation suggests that 55% of all mass shootings in the United States between 2013 and June of 2016 are explained by news coverage. Wow, that's over half. Basically, what the research was showing is that news coverage of 
causes approximately three mass shootings in the following week. That's just unbelievably shocking numbers. Part of what you want to do is control the media coverage, not control the media, control what you release and how you talk to the media. So don't let the killer story be the headline. You know, Catherine, one of the great debates that rages around the issue of mass shootings is the idea of getting rid of the guns or gun restrictions, which is one of the reasons that we chose this case to look at, because after the Port Arthur massacre, Australia did make changes to the gun laws. Now, can you set the table for us in terms of what were the laws before and why? And how did this killer get access to the weapons in the first place? So the gun regulations were limited in this country and a lot of other countries in terms of the don't. It was more like, hey, you can't bring it into a school. Or when you have it, you have to have it unloaded. You know, that kind of thing. There was a licensing law, although this shooter didn't have a license to own a gun. He just went to the store and bought them. When he went into the cafe, he was carrying a Colt AR-15 semi-automatic weapon. It was a very, very powerful rifle. And this was a time when things like that were happening. There were bad shootings in the United States, and that news was going out worldwide. And even before the Dunblane shooting in Scotland, the United States had, just the year before, in 94, passed its own series of laws that said because they had suffered with so many shootings, the Columbine shooting had occurred in 89 and so many other situations. In 94, the United States Congress passed a law limiting the sale of semi-automatic weapons and rifles. And I'm going to say this, there were flaws, I think, as some would say, critics would say, in the construction and the design and the language of the law on what you mean by semi-automatic rifles. But not getting into those details, the law certainly was designed to limit the sale of guns in the United States of these types of weapons. But the gun law that was passed by Congress was only able to be passed because it had a sunset provision in it. And a sunset provision means that the law disappears after 10 years. Really? Yeah, it is an odd law, but not unheard of. So it was passed in 94. And in 2004, that law in the United States went away and it never came back. So 94, there was a law passed in US Congress. 95, Australia is talking about making these changes to gun laws. Dunblane happens. Port Arthur happens. Australia steps right in and passes this massive package of gun laws, Mm. like lickety split, faster than they can pass anything in UK, which a UK does the same thing, but a year later. Mm. And And, don't forget, Aramoana's happened in New Zealand only a few years before this as well. And in this case, after the shooting, the leaders in Australia passed very strict gun control laws. They formulate the National Firearms Agreement, restricts the private ownership of all semi-automatic weapons, rifles, shotguns, things that are pump action. And they really introduce these very uniform firearms laws, something that you know we certainly don't have in the United States. And essentially what they say is, if you want a gun in Australia now, you have to provide a quote unquote genuine reason beyond mm. your own personal protection. You have okay. to have a genuine what reason. What would, would be a genuine reason? Kangaroos on my property, Tasmanian devils come and take in my, my chicken. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Exactly. Very much so. And more important, remember I mentioned the self-loading rifles? Those were completely banned. So many other controls, uh, recreational shooting and types of ammunitions and things like that. But probably the most worldwide impact, what was noticed most about the laws that were passed in Australia at the time, is that they passed a mandatory buyback 
mm-hmm. they said, if you have one of these rifles, you have to turn it in. And how many weapons were there? Australia's a big country. Just under 650,000 weapons were taken. They were paid something for them. They actually had to impose a tax. They cost the country $350 million. Wow, they weren't playing. No, they were not. They were not taking any prisoners, so to speak, in terms of we're going to take them, we're going to take them all now. And I think that the culture mm-hmm. of that country allowed for that to happen. People voluntarily brought their weapons in and turned them in, took some payment for them and changed the culture of the country dramatically because the guns disappeared. Do we have any idea on how that affected mass shootings after that in Australia? There hasn't been a mass shooting in Australia since then. Wow. So, right? So <laughs> Job first done. of all, yeah, job done, exactly. But in addition to that, in the United States, I think we've talked about this, that when you look at the firearms deaths in a year, two-thirds of them are suicides. Yeah. Suicide such a relevant part of the issue of the existence of firearms. In Australia, when all these guns were confiscated and melted down and recompense was given to the owners, Australia docketed a 74% decrease in suicides that year. So last week we had Dr. Adam Langford, Professor of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Alabama, join us. And if you haven't listened to that episode, it's called Gun Access Equals Gun Violence? Question mark. And it's episode eight in this season. So do go back and have a listen to it. It is chock full of information from Dr. Langford's study of 171 countries where he was looking at the correlation between gun ownership and gun violence, particularly pertaining to mass shootings. So while we had him on the line, we wanted to get his expert opinion and ask him the million-dollar question. Had countries that had actually changed their laws to restrict gun ownership seen a change in the numbers of these mass shooting incidents going forward? I do know that kind of anecdotally, the examples, Australia, some other countries where They've essentially reduced firearms access. They've experienced fewer attacks in the years after that change. So that's certainly important. It's encouraging. I guess another way of looking at it, though, is you can look at within one country and see the changes they've made, but you can also just compare countries and say, well, which countries do you want to be more like and which countries do you want to be less like? And I guess when it comes to the mass shooting problem, I just want to be more like countries where it's difficult for high-risk people to get the tools they need, the firearms they need in this case, to do a tremendous amount of damage. And is there any countries that you think are doing it better? Well, thinking about big areas, you know, places with big populations is informative because then you're less prone to have statistical flukes. So I guess one of the things that stood out to me was like, if you just look at China, for example, you know, China has more than 1 billion more people than the United States, and yet had far fewer public mass shootings during that 40 plus year period. Now, they do sometimes have things like mass stabbings, but the evidence I've seen suggests that mass stabbings are less lethal. So you could say that they're doing it better. They have strict gun laws, I think perhaps even perhaps threatening things like the death penalty for certain firearms violations, although maybe that's not exactly carried out in practice. That just strikes me as one example because their population is so much bigger than ours. And yet, even in raw numbers without making population adjustments, they have fewer incidents. 
If you're enjoying Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Con Community Podcast Productions, like this one. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris, and this is my story, Conning the Con. Right, let's talk about the why. What do you know about the killer and his motivations for this absolutely devastating massacre? I think we have a rare opportunity to get insight because in this case, this subject pled guilty. He was interviewed by a court psychiatrist, a crown psychiatrist, and he talked about it. So we really have a lot more insight into what happened at the time. And in fact, I watched his the videotape of his interview, which is creepy. Not the first I've seen, given my background, but very creepy. So we know a lot about him because of that. I will say this, despite what you might read, I think he had a pretty regular childhood in certain ways and that he had folks cared about him. He had a sister, but he was not considered to be very smart. And I'm going to use that word here. And then I just want to unpack that word. He dropped out of high school. He really didn't have a lot of friends. So at the time of the shooting, he was living in Newtown in a home that belonged to a woman who was much older than him. I can hear you thinking, what? Mm. He was living in the house alone because the woman had died in a car crash. So at the time that the shooting occurs, he's a young man. He's in his mid-20s. And he has not really developed a social structure. He doesn't really know a lot of people. Now, there's a woman who he befriended or she befriended him. But at some point, they developed a relationship. She was much older, and they became good friends. And he lived with her part of the time. She dies in a car accident, and her will leaves all of her estate to this boy who's in his 20s. Okay. It's intriguing on many levels, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, you might say, how do you know what's fact and fiction? When you can see the documents that show that her will left him just north of $600,000 back in 1992. And two properties. And two properties. So he's pretty minted. Indeed. But at the time, his parents are aware that he is somewhat not smart and that he might not be able to handle the management of these properties and the money and everything. And in fact, under the court system, there's a, a trustee named for his assets. And that trustee in this case, and this was at his mom's urging, is the father. So these murders occurred in 96. These are things that occurred in 1992. And he has inherited this money and he travels. He travels with a 16-year-old at one point. Well, that's super creepy. Red flag alert. But he's definitely flush with cash. And I think probably when you look at the big perspective of it, he probably thinks that being flush with cash is going to make him more popular and that people will talk to him, it's clear from every interview that he doesn't really have the social skills 
So he travels to places and then he turns to talk to people and people don't really necessarily talk back to him a lot. And if you think back when we talked about the actual murders, he got some food and went out onto the patio essentially to eat a little bit. And some people there reported that he turned to talk to them, but they didn't pay much attention to him. This is a circumstance of who he is at the Mm. time of the shooting. He's Mm. inherited all this money. He's a high school dropout because his grades weren't good. He comes from a family that clearly would provide some support, but he befriends or this woman befriends him to the point where within a very short time period, He's hanging out with her, and then he inherits all of this money and two properties from her. It smells a little fishy. Yeah. So not knowing the background, what would you think? I want to say, knowing your podcast history. (laughs) I mean, he screams con man to me because he's not connected to this person in any way. I'd like to know more about the woman's history before I would jump to any conclusions. But the questions I'd be asking would be, does she have no other living relatives that could have inherited that money? Maybe then it would make more sense that she's then given it to that person. But how often does that happen? Not that often. Somebody's always got a living relative. The other thing that I just want to comment on there is what I hadn't realized when we talked about the shooting and he'd gone outside and sat down and ate something. What I hadn't really clocked at that time is that He'd already killed people. The actions of going into that place, ordering a meal, having just killed people. Shocking to me. Yeah. And we saw that, I think, in other instances that we've talked about this season and last, where a killer kills and then goes shopping. Mm. The Texas Tower shooter Mm. killed his mother and Mm -hmm. his own wife and then went shopping for more weapons. Virginia Tech, he's shot Mm -hmm. two people and then he's off to the post office. So these killers get to a point, right, where they're really not functioning in the way that you normally see them functioning. And this is a great example of it. So here's somebody who's cold-blooded, right? But before the shooting, there's another interesting thing that happens not more than a year after this woman dies and he inherits this money. I told you his father was the trustee. A year later, his father commits suicide and leaves a suicide note. Okay. I've got some alarm bells ringing. That's two people that their death has led to him having access to money. Yeah. And he inherits his father's money too. Okay. Interesting. I'm smelling massive rat here. Am I on the wrong track entirely? Well, we'll have to see. (sighs) Okay. When you look at it in retrospect, it all makes perfect sense. But if you saw it one piece at a time, so the father dies, he drowns, there's a suicide note left next to him, and it is determined to be a suicide. And that's just a year after he inherits Within that Mm -hmm. time period, right? So that's in 93, his father commits suicide. And in 93, at the end of the year, he goes out and he buys a rifle through a newspaper ad. He does some traveling. He has a relationship with some young 16-year-old. A child. Yes, indeed. And she actually does some traveling with him, a little bit of traveling with him. He actually proposes to her, but she turns him down. And I'll tell you why. Because he's a creep who's (laughs) a pedophile? And yes, maybe so. He definitely tries to develop some relationships that don't necessarily work. And beginning of 96, he purchases a rifle at a gun shop. And then he buys a shotgun and a gun cleaning kit at another shop. And we know that he begins to drink a lot more. And he drinks and he drinks. And he's talking about suicide. Who's he talking to? He's talking to some of the people who he is around, like his family members who are left and his girlfriend. Okay. And we find some things out later because he is interviewed, right, by a psychiatrist. So it's his version. 
That's an important part. This is his version. So in 96, he acquires a lot of guns. He purchases the AR-15. He purchases a rifle at a gun shop. He gets a shotgun. And so he's looking for other certain weapons to buy and ammunition. And when you talk about what's true and hard and fast, think of a bag that you would put baseball equipment in it because the bats are long. Whatever that sports bag might be, a canvas bag that you could put your heavy equipment in. He goes into a sports store and he buys a canvas bag. And in retrospect, the people who are in the store say, oh, he asked, this has to be a sturdy bag. I'm going to put ammunition in this bag. And that's the bag that he loads his weapons in the day that he does the murders. He denies that he bought the bag when he's taken into interrogation by law enforcement. And what he says and what he admits to and what he doesn't admit to is just crazy. So the night before he has dinner with his mom, he drinks a lot. He sets his alarm at 6 a.m. Law enforcement asks him, did you set your alarm? He says, no, I, I never set an alarm. He set his alarm for 6 a.m. He didn't have a job, so he didn't have any reason to get up. So when he gets up and he leaves the property in the morning, he has loaded his car with all of his ammunition and weapons. And he also leaves a semi-automatic firearm that he has purchased and a lot of ammunition in the front hallway of the house. And so we don't really know a lot about him. And what we learn about in some cases is all after the fact. Like the woman who turned the marriage proposal down, who was so young, said she turned down the marriage proposal because she didn't think he was very smart. She said that they had been to restaurants and it didn't even seem like he was reading the menu, like maybe he couldn't read the menu. So he had a lot of challenges. So when you talk about, okay, maybe he's just a very crafty person and was able to orchestrate the death of the woman and the death of his father so he could inherit all this money because he's a brilliant con man, juxtapose that with the fact that now I'll tell you that he was on a permanent disability support pension. And he had been determined to be of a very low IQ, had left school, didn't have a lot of intellect, and wasn't able to take care of himself. And that's why he was on a disability support pension for being, quote unquote, mentally handicapped. But even his own attorney, his own attorney said, when he doesn't have his gun with him, he's just a sad and sippant little good boy. He's a nothing, a nobody. He's dim-witted. Wow, those Aussies do not pull any punches. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, retrospect, right? Those were comments that he said in an on-camera interview well after the incident. So that was the position that the, his attorney had. And court records are out publicly on this. When I look at the psychiatrist report and the court records, there are some things that really jump out to me. One of them is this whole idea of dim-witted, yet he's able to function. And what does that mean? And he dropped out of school. But when you look at the psychiatrist testimony, and this is 96, the psychiatrist makes references to how he might have had attention deficit, he might have had Asperger's. It is always a challenge when something like this happens. People say to me, he had to be crazy to have done that. How can you not say that he's crazy? And that word is used in the most generic sense. And for people who work in mental health, and the conversations I have is always that when someone reaches a point where they choose to commit a mass killing, there's no question that there's a mental breakdown at that point. But what leads up to it is you're mad or bad, right? So setting aside the actual act, what got them there? One of the things that we don't have a lot of opportunities to see generally is actual video audio coverage of interrogations and interviews. And as an FBI agent, of course, I've been in a lot of rooms where I've talked to subjects 
to get the truth out of them. And in many cases, that was a confession. In this case, we have an opportunity to see the actual interrogation of this subject. And when you listen to it, I think he's just manipulative, but not because he's super smart. I think he's manipulating because he wants attention. And we saw this in many other crimes in the United States where a subject wants to be interviewed because they're the center of attention while they're being interviewed. Like the sports bag that I mentioned. They show him a receipt for the sports bag and they say, did you buy this sports bag? And he says, no, because it gives him five more minutes of conversation. So he had his own physical and mental health challenges that made it difficult for him to communicate and Because his communication skills were atypical, a lot of people rejected communicating with him, and he very much became a grievance collector. He took that to mean people didn't like him. Right now, this guy's still rotten in prison. In some ways, we know a lot more about him over time, and it really wasn't until after the psychiatrist interviewed him that we got this information. But here's one of the things to keep in mind about this. Remember I've said before that a killer sets his own narrative. And this killer set his own narrative with the psychiatrist. Every killer says, I was bullied. Every killer. Some of them may have been, all of them may have been, but every one of them says, oh, I was bullied in school. And I'm not making fun of bullying. I was bullied in school. Who wasn't? Bullying is a terrible thing. And I don't want to disregard that. But he did tell his version to the psychiatrist. This is what his psychiatrist said. Mr. I'm not going to use his name was an oversensitive individual who attributed aggression and malviolence to many of those around him. This is my opinion. It is not a result of any precursory delusions or morbid experiences, meaning it wasn't an outside source, but a product of the very real rejection and disdain that he experienced through much of his life, largely as a result of his intellectual limitations and particularly his personality. He's a self-absorbed individual with a marked egocentric view of the world. He has high expectations of others, a sense of entitlement, which he had found both constantly disappointing results in. And that's one of the reasons why I said he was a grievance collector. Everybody who he interacted with didn't respond the way he wanted them to. We talked about the first two people who were killed was the couple who owned the seaside B&B, the Martins. He wanted to purchase a farm that the Martins owned. And Mrs. Martin said, no, I'm never going to sell you that farm. It doesn't matter how much money. And when they wouldn't sell it to him, they were wrong. And he was the grievance collector that put that rock in his backpack of another grievance that he had with somebody. And the Martins were the first two people he killed. I mean, they were together in one room when he killed them. And I don't know if he walked in and shot them point blank, or if he walked in and spoke to them first. God, it's horrific either way, isn't it? Tell me, Catherine, do you have any idea of how much planning went into it beforehand? Or do you think he just kind of snapped when he went to the mountains and then just careered out of control. There's targeted violence, which is planned violence. And he started planning a year before based on information from his conversations and evidence that we have. And in the months before, very aggressively planning. So when he left that day, even though he told his mom he'd see her tomorrow, he said, goodbye, thanks for dinner. I'll see you tomorrow. And he left. And then this happened. I think he had this grievance that he had in his backpack of grievances. And part of that was this whole worldview that people didn't treat him right. I think it's also interesting. The lawyer telling us publicly 20 years later, he struggled representing the boy because he would get the boy towards a confession. It's clear that the boy did this. And so he'd say, look, the sensible thing to do is to plead and not have a trial. But this young man says, 
I'll confess to the murders, but not to the people who are wounded. If the killer confesses to the murders and he doesn't confess to the people who are wounded, how would they prove the charges for the people who are wounded? Witnesses in a trial. So it's all about the attention. Right. The entire time he's being interviewed, handcuffed to a chair, he's got a big shit-eaten grin on his face. And he's smiling and he's laughing. And that might be a nervous tick, right? He wanted the victims to have to come in and face him and say, that's the man who shot me, because he would then be the center of attention in the courtroom. Eventually, what the attorney did is he said, I knew that he wanted to get this notoriety. And he thought, even if he went to prison, everybody would love him there, and he'd be glorified, and he'd have his own group of people. And he said that himself in the interview. So his attorney said, I knew that he was able to be influenced by my suggestive words. He was able to convince him that if they came into court, he'd be ridiculed in court. So, I mean, he was manipulating him, right? Yeah. And the right result for the victims, not having to be re-victimized going through a court case. But I don't think he's the first lawyer that I would be calling if I need a representation. I think that defense counsel felt that it would have just been a dog and pony show. There's a moment in the interview when the interrogators put a notebook down in front of him and they start flipping through the pages, showing him images of the 35 people he killed, image at a time. You'd like to think the killer would react. And the cop keeps saying, do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see this? It's not doing anything. He looks at the pictures. He leans forward so he can look at the pictures in more detail. He doesn't say anything. No reaction. And they thought that if they showed him the crime scene photos, it might jostle him a little bit and he might say, yeah, I did that. It was more important to him that he's a center of attention. He had a lot of his own issues and his own challenges and whatever his mental health. There are millions and millions of people in the world that have mental health challenges and they don't commit mass murders. So mental health has nothing to do with mass murder and causing mass murder. He had problems and challenges that led him to where he is today, which is rotting in a prison, which is wonderful. But he did plead guilty to and is serving 35 life sentences with no chance of parole. His attorney was interviewed and he said he thought he was going to be well liked in prison. He's alone. He's a pariah. Everybody hates him. Do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast. In this podcast, we bring you bi-weekly discussions on possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Backed up by research articles and other credible sources, we do deep dives into things like archaeology and physics and share in-depth discussions with topic experts. Visit us at SpookySciencesisters.com to listen to a couple of skeptics debunk some of your favorite alien encounters, cryptid sightings, and ghost stories with science, sass, and a significant amount of laughter. Thank you, and stay spooky. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, 
I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. Knowing this background, Sarah, do you think there's anything that could have prevented this shooting? You've put me on the spot. I was actually so engrossed, I forgot to take any notes this week. There is one, though. I think that sports bag, perhaps if people had asked a few more questions when he was purchasing the sports bag. Right. And, you know, a sports bag and putting ammunition in it. This is in a country where people don't carry a lot of firearms. Why would you need a bag that carries a big bunch of ammunition? It doesn't hurt to ask. It doesn't hurt to bring it to somebody's attention. You want to hear one creepy fact? Yeah, go for it. There was a network television journalist. She knew something was going on. She was calling randomly, which is what journalists do. I know I've done it. I did it when I was a journalist. You call randomly businesses and locations trying to see if you can find, hey, do you know what's going on? And she called the Seascape and somebody answered the phone and she heard what she referred to as maniacally laughing in this very high pitched voice who said, hello, and she introduced herself, and she said, do you know what might be going on? And then he started laughing again, and then he said, you kind of got me in the middle of something. I'm all covered in blood. He said, I've got a couple hostages with me. If you try to call me again, I'm going to kill the hostages. So she called law enforcement, and that's how they found out where he was. Well, you weren't wrong. That is super creepy. Yeah, it's a very crazy, super sad story of a sad little man who wanted fame and glory and is rotting in prison because of it. I mean, what an episode. That was quite the jaw-dropping sequence of events, Catherine. If you have to choose one hard lesson, what would it be? That back then, in the 90s, law enforcement, the press, gave him exactly what he wanted. He got the notoriety. They sat in the interrogation room and showed him newspaper covers magazine covers and showed him how famous he was. The stories referred to him as powerful and evil. He got exactly what he wanted. And I just, I hate that. Well, Catherine, you know what I'm going to ask you next, because I like to leave these episodes with a little slice of hope. Have you got a story of courage or bravery that you can share with us? I love that we cover this at the end of every podcast because I think it's important to remember that there's a lot of good that happens in all the bad. You know, there's always good. You just have to look for it. One of the things that I wanted to tell you is that there was a couple, Gay and John Fiedler, and they were there with some of their closest friends who were killed right in front of them, which was horrible. And when they were interviewed later, they said they remembered lying in the cafe and pretending to be dead until the killer, you know, was not around. But when they got the chance, when he was reloading, they got up and fled and they ran. They had to step over bodies in order to get out, but they hid in shrubs with this couple, Bev and Peter Kelly, and they were a younger couple and the age of their own kids. And because of that, the Kellys and the Fiddlers became good friends and they are still friends like to this day. And I think that's kind of neat that that happened. But another thing, you know, we talked about how the gun laws changed. John Fiddler flew back to Melbourne with his wife when they were able to do that. And he went directly to the premier's office. He still had blood on his clothing. Oh, my goodness. Like literally straight there. Yeah, they literally went there. He said later on, you know, I thought, who can help me? You have to go to the top. And John says, you know, it made me feel that I'd done something to ease the pain of my mates who were killed. People think they can't do anything. 
Look yeah. at what this guy did. He mm. walked to the head and helped to move forward in a very visceral way. Mm. Also, there's another great story of a nurse. Her name is Lynn Beavis. And she was outside when it started, but she's a nurse. And she chose, what? even though the shooting was still going on, to run inside the cafe what? while the shooting was going on. She said she just had to do it. She couldn't stand outside and know that people might be bleeding and people might be injured inside the cafe, right? But she said, mm. I knew that I couldn't stay outside. I would have regretted it. She saved people's lives that day. Well, Catherine, I don't think I'd be alone in saying that. I think it's kind of awe-inspiring that John Fiedler rocked straight up to the Premier's office. But even more jaw-dropping to me is that Australia changed its gun laws on the back of the Port Arthur tragedy and the country didn't implode or descend into anarchy. So the argument could be there that it can be done. I'm just saying, that's my takeaway. But Catherine, what last little gem are you going to leave our listeners with today? You know, whether 35 people are killed or one person is killed, the death is equally significant to that person and their friends and family. So anything that you can do to prevent targeted violence is something that you have an obligation to do. I know I feel that obligation every day. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. You may recall I mentioned at the end of the last episode, Catherine and I met some incredible podcasters at CrimeCon in both Vegas and London this year who create ethical and compelling content. So let me introduce you to one such podcast. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Unsolved Murders, Cults Uncovered and Mysteries Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Each week on Morbidology, I uncover a new true crime case using investigative research combined with source audio. I just 
snatched it from her and I started took it and it's like I just hit her with it. Morbidology is a victim-focused podcast that mostly covers cases that aren't widely documented in mainstream media. I also like to take an in-depth look at any systemic failures which had a part to play in the crime. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology across all podcast platforms. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 